the Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. And this is the April 2023 Literature Review Series. Now, the episode leads off with featured articles. A six-pack of studies highlighting some of the best articles of the month. Then the discussion shifts to articles focusing on neuro, heme, and ID before closing out with the category featuring articles voted on by you, friends of the pod in the pharmacist featured section, a.k.a. the front of the fridge. So if you want to vote, be sure to follow on Twitter or Instagram at Pharmacy to Dose. Um, since May 1st, I've had a trial of the day video highlighting landmark or notable articles in critical care and emergency medicine in 60 seconds. Um, lots of good stuff there at pharmacy to dose and the 2023 pharmacy to dose awards nominations close June 23rd, nine amazing categories. Uh, the winner gets a fantastic award package featuring an amazing trophy. What are you waiting on? Uh, link in the episode description to submit nominations. I mean, you need to do it today. Uh, June 23rd, it's coming up. April 2023, it was an absolutely fantastic month for research and publications to highlight on this episode. Very excited. So here we go. So normally, I'm uh, very lucky to be joined by a guest on the Literature Review series, but uh, unfortunately, the pre-planned guest host with me for April had some last-minute changes. Um, So I'm sorry that the episode came a little late with me uh, preparing for the other half of the episode as well. Um, So a solo pod today, right? Solo April Literature Review series, but I promise it's still going to be a blast. And without any further delay, I think let's talk about these featured articles And let's go ahead and open up our six-pack of studies. And I need to lead off with a study that caused a stir um, in the online critical care community. I think that's probably putting it lightly. Um, And that is the uh, critical care study entitled Propofol and Survival, an Updated Meta-Analysis of Randomized Clinical Trials uh, from authors uh, in Italy and Japan. And ultimately what this... um, trial this meta result found um, they included randomized trials with propofol and they found that the the use of propofol increased mortality by 10 percent. this was an updated review from a 2015 meta-analysis that showed no difference in mortality but let's dig in here for a second because in my opinion i think these results need to be interpreted with caution for a couple reasons here so number one there was a lack of defined comparator groups I mean, think about all the indications that propofol can be used for, all the patient populations, all the settings that, that, that these trials could be in. And when you think about PICO criteria, right, PIC, the C stands for comparison. 
I'd say that's pretty important when we're thinking about these trials. And number two is the lack of a defined time frame or follow-up. So unless you personally dive into the over 250 studies that were included, um, you know, we don't know anything about the details of the studies. We know mortality is affected by time, right? So if we add everything into one group, right, and we're comparing, who knows, anywhere from seven to a year, 30, 60, 90 day, what have you, um, that's going to cloud the results. And then there's a letter to the editor uh, appropriately titled Propofol versus the World, which is amazing, um, that points out issues with data extraction from specific studies, Um And then they point out also that the model they might have used, the statistical model may not be the most appropriate, right? They should have used a random effects model because you're you're having a heterogeneous study population compared to that fixed effect model. It seems like I'm dumping on these authors, but I I promise I'm not trying to. This trial does give us like great insight into the overall literature behind propofol. Um, They used a a, a Bayesian meta-analysis to take on this treasure trove of studies. And in the meta-analysis, right, they used a trial sequential analysis, TSA. So that's one of our favorites. And I don't want to, like, get lost in the statistics and things. But I guess my ultimate thing is I just think we need to pump the brakes that our universal use of propofol increases your mortality by 10%. I don't know if I necessarily believe the data to support that, the data that we have now. So hopefully more to come. I'm sure there'll be um, further analyses into these and we'll kind of get some uh, updated statistics and we'll see what that looks like. Article 2 features a podcast favorite, our partner, rock star researcher, you guessed it, Sylvia Stefanos, leading her University of Colorado colleagues with an update on the management of non-cytotoxic extravasation injuries. Um, They were focusing on peripheral administration of both hypertonic saline and vasopressors. Um, This is an update to the 2015 paper, uh, also led by uh, the University of Colorado pharmacist group. So, It's published in pharmacotherapy, so you know when these big reviews get published in the pharmacy-specific journals, it has incredible tables and details um, about trials and things. So I love there's a table in the article that describes the agent, the mechanism of toxicity, and treatment options, right? Both pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic. And I also love that figure one within the article, it describes a stepwise approach to treatment, right? Stop the infusion, kind of grade the extravasation based on the patient appearance and everything around the area, elevate that extremity. They even let us know what temperature of a compress to apply. So we are um, truly spoiled with this awesome article. Um, Now, you're probably listening thinking, I already know what to do with peripheral vasopressors and hypertonic saline. You sure about that? You sure about that? I mean, you may think you know, but they go into so much detail about it. They discuss those agents as well as hyperosmolar agents, acidic or alkaline agents, and then a detailed review into both the treatment and a review of the medications. Uh, This paper goes above and beyond as we see time and time again with our University of Colorado colleagues and the pharmacist research group they have there. So uh, awesome job, awesome job. Now we've talked about 
multi-center research on the podcast and the importance of this. And here again, our neurocritical care pharmacists leading the way. So this is a multi-center retrospective study in over 20 sites that compared the safety and administration technique of nemotipine formulations via enteral feeding tubes in those aneurysmal subarachnoid patients with a secondary outcome to see if the choice of kind of product affects patient outcomes. So this paper was published in pharmacotherapy, and for those who may not work in a neuro ICU primarily, right, nemotipine is available as a soft gelatin capsule or um, an oral liquid form. But typically what happens is you you obtain the liquid from the soft gelatin capsule. And that's about as fun and easy as you imagine, right? And remember, this is a Q4 drug. So it's not like you're, you're doing it once a day. Um, in the discussion, the authors describe and go into detail about this terrible process. So if you're curious, definitely pull that up. Um, and interestingly enough, right, when they, they included, they looked at all the institutions and what they use, they found that about half of the reporting institutions draw the liquid up from the capsules and the other institutions are in Canada with tablets or are able to use the commercially available liquid. So it's kind of split between the, the groups that were included in this study. And what they found was that the highest rate of hypotension was when liquid was drawn up from the capsule at bedside. Well, that is surprising because I kind of expected this to be the lowest to be honest, in terms of my expectation of getting the least amount of drug out of that. But, you know, one quick thing the authors, you know, note is that this is correlation and not necessarily causation, right? You can't tell that from a retrospective study. Um, But one big piece, the highest incidence of diarrhea was from the commercially available liquid at over 70%. Um, And it was followed by the liquid extraction from those soft gelatin capsules and then followed by the tablets, crushing those tablets. But Keep in mind, the third place tablets, they still had an incidence of 36%, right? Over one in three. So a huge side effect, it's something to track. Um, And the authors also found that those who received crushed tablets and liquid drawn up at the bedside had a higher incidence of DCI or delayed cerebral ischemia. So the big note there is that maybe all administration techniques or products aren't the same and something for us to kind of keep in mind as we're thinking about formulations and what to do for our patients who have those aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhages. Uh, what an awesome study by pharmacists across the country, um, a who's who of names definitely pulled this up. Um, and I'm certain this won't be the last discussion into nemotipine formulations that we have. And the theme for our final articles is the kidney. And we'll start with a study comparing our two favorite ways to prolong filter life in CRRT, uh, comparing regional citrate versus heparin. So this was a multi-center UK study in hospitals that transitioned from a heparin-based protocol to a regional citrate-based protocol published in the Journal of Critical Care. So quick reminder, the 2012 KDGO guidelines recommend the use of regional citrate as first-line therapy for CRRT anticoagulation, and the articles note that institutions started adopting and applying this to their patients without necessarily high-quality data showing what might happen. Um, We know, you know, heparin is an anticoagulant, but citrate's a natural anticoagulant that's included in PRBCs. 
That's why we have to think about calcium administration when people, when patients get a lot of those blood products because citrate binds to calcium. So that's kind of how these two work, but back to the study, right? So the researchers included data from 69,000 patients in 181 ICUs. Uh, it's a retrospective study included data between 2009 and 2017, with that primary outcome being 90-day mortality after ICU admission. And the authors found no difference between citrate and heparin. But when they adjusted for patient covariates, they found some significant secondary outcomes and that patients receiving citrate had an increase in time receiving advanced kidney support. So AKA they were on CRT longer as well as time receiving advanced cardiovascular support. So they could have been on vasopressors or something of the like um, and time in the ICU. So all three things um, and to top it off, it was more expensive and associated with significant increases in healthcare resource use. Um, you know, I think it's important to note that regional citrate has its advantages, but it has to be, you have to have a well-defined protocol and a great team to be able to do this. And, and I think a big caveat here is that this data was collected as institutions transitioned, right? They got it in the first like six months or so afterwards and citrate protocols, their time and resource intensive, but I think there's probably some institutions that have, they have mastered protocols. They have the, you know, they have the calcium protocol to prevent that hypocalcemia. Um, and I think there probably are institutions that are able to use this safe and effectively as their first line treatment. But I think what this paper is pointing out, or my big takeaway is that it might not be first line for everybody. And especially um, once we get out of those academic, the large academic medical centers where you have the abundance of people, I think as resources, you need to think of that. I think unless you have somebody really pushing for it and it's a big initiative, I feel like I don't know if there's as much data to support that use of citrate. I mean, 69,000 patients is a lot. Keep in mind, it is retrospective, right? But um, still definitely something to consider. And our last two studies focus on the use of a clinical decision support tool and a stress biomarker test to identify ICU patients at high risk for AKI. Um, so this is it's such an innovative and idea uh, and design out of the University of Pittsburgh. Multiple pharmacist authors. Um, one of the first articles publishes an article describing those interventions, barriers, and proposed solutions to implementing this protocol in the annals of pharmacotherapy. And the other is an AJHP article that creates case presentations to highlight how to use this protocol and considerations. So, uh, a little bit about the protocol. So the protocol utilizes biomarkers, TIMP2 IGFBP7. So if you're curious about that, definitely go back to the episode with Erin Barreto and she talks a little bit about that. But these biomarkers, they're upregulated during kidney stress. And there are studies that have shown that using these biomarkers is promising to help identify those patients at, at high risk for AKI. But the uptake and the protocolization is a little complicated, and I think that may contribute to that lack of adoption into clinical practice. So the authors created a protocol and educated both the critical care clinical pharmacists as well as the patient care teams. So the EHR alerted pharmacists to patients at risk, and then they determined the appropriateness of ordering that biomarker by doing a chart review and looking at their criteria. 
Um, and a test result, it was reviewed by the pharmacist with that multidisciplinary care team. Um, now, a value greater than 0.3, that typically indicated the biomarker was elevated. But as the AJHP article emphasizes, clinical judgment was used, right? There were 394 alerts that were fired. I mean, only 93 tests were ordered per protocol. And the AJHP article does a great, um, gives great examples of four cases with different outcomes, right? One where, you know, they assessed the medication exposure. One was discontinued. One was continued and even modified based on the biomarker result and the clinical situation. Um, so it's a really, I, I think it's a very practical article um, that shows very real life scenarios and how they manage them and what, what you could possibly consider in doing with those. And then the Annals of Pharmacotherapy article goes into the impact of using this protocol and, in a sense, lessons learned. Um, you know, one point they make is that the biomarker helped the team modify therapy or improve monitoring even if the result wasn't elevated, right? It kind of put it on your radar and you were able to kind of focus in and and uh, help optimize therapy even if it wasn't that that biomarker wasn't elevated, so table three in this Annals of Pharmacotherapy article describe barriers they found for alerts that that didn't create an action. Uh, I encourage everyone to read the article. I'm not going to go into detail here, but these are very practical solutions for problems that if anyone who's made or, or implemented a massive protocol, there are inevitably problems or things that you couldn't envision, and that's this happened to them, and they are sharing their advice with us, which is, which is awesome. Um, Shout out to Theradoc, right? The software that they use to create the alert. Um, Not a sponsor, but uh, my final point is this just shows what an amazing clinical pharmacist team that they have, right? To have the trust to be semi in charge of a protocol like this and shows that with the right training, trust, and resources, anything is possible. I think this is one of the best examples of nephrotoxin stewardship that I can think of. Well, what a month where four of our six featured studies are are highlighting the awesome work that pharmacists are doing. So that's that's so so cool. Um, but let's kind of dive into our our uh, subcategories here for a second, and uh, let's get lost in our mind a little bit with our neuro section. And batting lead off is a research statement from ATS about causes, consequences, and treatments of sleep and circadian disruption in the ICU, uh, featuring rock star pharmacists Mojda Hevner and John Devlin. So this multidisciplinary group identified research priorities, but emphasized that the key is development of rigorous yet feasible ICU measurements of sleep and circadian disruption, right? We need to be able to figure out how to accurately measure them before we're able to study treatments and um, solutions or preventions, things like that. Now, there are four overarching subtopics that cover the contents of this research statement from ATS. And the first is the prevalence, incidence, and risk factors. Then it's measurement of sleep and circadian rhythm. And then followed by outcomes and treatment of ICU sleep and circadian rhythm. Um, But I want to draw your eyes to table three. 
Um, that goes into all of the interventions and even considerations for sleep promotion, such as medication timing and clustered care, right? So uh, this certainly won't be the last time we hear about this topic. I'm kind of excited to see what comes from these defined research goals and strategies and see where this comes in terms of research. Now, let's uh, travel to the Carolinas for our next study where our Duke Pharmacy colleagues evaluated levetiracetam dosing strategies for seizure prophylaxis following TBI. Now, this was published in Neurocritical Care, and the authors retrospectively looked at six years of data in TBI patients receiving prophylaxis and receiving seizure prophylaxis. And 866 patients were ultimately enrolled, and they were split into three groups, right? Patients that got less than or equal to one gram, those who got one and a half grams, and those who got greater than or equal to two grams. And this was their daily Kepra requirement. Now, after propensity weighting, there was no difference between either group And the lowest dose group, right, those who received less than or equal to one gram, was associated with the lowest rate of early post-traumatic seizures, death without seizures, and in-hospital mortality. There's uh, almost no data on dosing protocols for seizure prophylaxis in TBI, so uh, it's really great to see this research. And... um, Shout out to the two statisticians on the study because when you look in the supplementary appendix and some of the stats, what a monster being able to control for all these things going through this much data. Um, so look at this, by the way, look at me being kind to Duke, right? Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, what an awesome job from, from the pharmacist here because there's almost no data on dosing protocols for seizure prophylaxis in TBI. So really cool to see some research starting to come out to help, to help guide our, our therapy. And closing out our uh, neuro section is a study from Cleveland uh, featuring Ellen Imler and colleagues in critical care explorations entitled Phenobarbital-Based Protocol for Alcohol Withdrawal Syndrome in a MICU pre-post-implementation study, right? So they they implemented this group, implemented a phenobarbital-based protocol, and they encouraged the medical team to use the protocol as a first-line intervention. So 102 patients were analyzed, and what they found was that the use of a phenobarbital-based protocol decreased ICU length of stay by 40% compared to the pre-implementation group with a decrease in both hospital length of stay and need for adjunct medications. So for those who are on the phenobarb train, for those who are trying to get on the train, uh, this trial is certainly for you. I mean, if you're curious for yourself, is this something that you're looking to implement? Um, the authors graciously published the protocol in the supplementary appendix. Um, I always enjoy that, um, being able to learn from, from what some of our colleagues are doing across the country. So I think that's really awesome. I don't know if you're noticing the the same thing as I am, but boy, uh, you pharmacists, friends of the pod, are crushing it this month with the literature and, and all you're doing to help our patients out. Let's kind of transition into our next subcategory. I think we're going to let it bleed with the heme section. But ironically, our first study is looking to prevent the bleed. That's correct. It's tranexamic acid to prevent obstetrical hemorrhage after cesarean delivery published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So a 2021 study showed that TXA reduced blood loss by 100 mLs, but 
the majority of patients delivered in the absence of labor. So the newer article notes that they're at a lower risk of hemorrhage. So this randomized controlled trial compared one gram of TXA to placebo immediately after umbilical cord clamping with a primary composite outcome of maternal death or blood transfusions. So 11,000 patients were randomized and no difference was found in the primary outcome or in the incidence of intra-op estimated blood loss more than a liter. So in the largest randomized controlled trial looking at hemorrhage prevention, no difference was seen and this certainly questions the universal use of TXA for this indication. Now, for our next article, we're going back to the Steel City with the Pittsburgh authors of this study in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery entitled Time to Early Resuscitative Intervention Associated with Mortality in Trauma Patients at Risk for Hemorrhage. So we've all heard of the golden hour in trauma. Right? We do everything fast, or at least we try to. So this is a secondary analysis of the PAMPER and the STAMP trials. And they're looking to see an association between time to interventions and mortality in trauma patients at risk for hemorrhagic shock. Wow, those are great trial names. Now let's just briefly overview of them, right? The PAMPER trial randomized patients at risk for hemorrhagic shock during air medical transport and they uh, randomized them to either initial resuscitation with two units of FFP or standard of care, and they found the FFP reduced 30-day mortality. Now, the STAMP trial randomized that same population, not the same patients, the same population, but with EMS instead, and they randomized them to one gram of TXA or placebo, and there was no difference in 30-day mortality. So this propensity-matched cohort in the study that we're talking about in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery, they found that every one-minute increase in time to early resuscitative intervention increases 24-hour mortality by 1.5% and 30-day mortality by 2%. So keeping in mind, these are cohort analyses, not primary outcomes, etc. And this is pretty decent evidence that time does matter in trauma patients at risk for hemorrhage and that we really do need to be trying to do everything fast as we can in these patients. So all this TXA talk has me needing some thromboelastometry in my life. So let's chat about TEG-guided hemostatic resuscitation compared to conventional coagulation test. This was a study published in Critical Care featuring French trauma patients. And this retrospective study from two level one trauma centers in France utilized propensity matching with a primary composite outcome of alive and free of massive transfusion at 24 hours. And all patients received at least one PRBC. And what the authors found is that thromboelastography, the group assigned to that arm, increased the odds of achieving the primary outcome by almost three times, 2.81 to be specific, while also reducing massive transfusion. Um, Patients in the conventional coagulation test group also received more PRBCs, FFP, and PCC compared to the Rotem guided treatment. So um, another argument for personalized care, especially in our acutely ill trauma patients. And a big shout out for the last study to my desk mate, eighth floor office crew, Bree Negard, uh, led a study researching the interference of propofol with APTT monitoring for therapeutic heparin published in AJHP. So, 
20, what they found is that 20% of all APTTs from the study cohort had some sort of interference. So this wasn't one or two patients, right? It affected over 50% of the cohort. So surprising results, something to keep in mind for a medication combination that is used in tandem so frequently. What a great month of heme articles. Um, Now let's kind of transition to our next group. That's right. I think we got a fever. And leading off is a study from the Open Forum of Infectious Diseases entitled Clinical Outcomes with Extended versus Intermittent Infusions of Anti-Pseudomonal Beta-Lactams in Patients with Gram-Negative Bacteremia. Uh, Now, this was led by pharmacists Nikki Tran and Jason Pogue, and it was a matched retrospective cohort study at Detroit Medical Center. And basically, the hospital changed their standard administration from intermittent to extended infusions, and the authors matched them based on severity of illness, ICU status, source of the bacteremia, the causative pathogen, and the agent received. So 268 patients were included in the final analysis and the breakdown of agents, about 60% of them received cefepime, 25% received piptazo with the rest receiving amiropenem. And the results are a knockout for extended infusions. I mean, improved time to clinical stability, improved time to deep fervescence, improved resolution of leukocytosis, reduced treatment failure, reduced recurrence, reduce length of stay. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about one of the PharmD articles that goes into intermittent versus extended. So we'll come back to this in just a bit. Uh, but what an awesome job by these authors. can only imagine that the data that had to be combed through to f- ultimately find these groups. So really, really um, awesome job in Denver and a, a cool publication that we got to highlight here. So next is a fantastic article in pharmacotherapy, which is published in tandem with the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist, or SIDP. And the article is entitled Antimicrobial Susceptibility Testing, an updated primer for clinicians in the area, in the era of antimicrobial resistance. This is a review article into everything that goes into antimicrobial susceptibility testing, including things like what are our testing methods? You know, examples, broth microdilution, disc diffusion, Um, a review into rapid diagnostic tests, combining antimicrobial and diagnostic stewardship. But I think one of my favorite pieces is considerations for clinical and or laboratory diagnostic stewardship. So zip drive worthy, all should save this PDF, especially if you take learners or um, involved in the care of ID patients. I'm guessing we took some ibuprofen uh, because the fever is coming down. And the last article to cover is a scoping review and clinical perspective in AJHP about echinocandin exposures in obesity, featuring authors across the country as well as across the world, right? Shout out to our Saudi Arabian pharmacist authors, which is so very cool. Um, And the review features 25 articles, 17 of which reported low attainment of PKPD targets which I think differs from the classic opinion that echinocandins don't need dose adjustments in obesity. The article is filled with tables that give details of the included studies. I certainly learned a lot. Everyone needs to go download that and read it for themselves. And I'm very excited as we move to the best section of the episode, the front of the fridge, where we highlight all the awesome work pharmacists are doing. And for the first time, you all chose the articles, right? 
There were three votes on social media to choose. And if you want to make your voice heard, if you're like, wait, Nick, I didn't get to vote at Pharmacy to Dose. Um, so for our first article, our vote number one, um, Shannon Carabetta and her colleagues in Jacksonville, Florida, kick off our pharmacist featured articles with an Annals of Pharmacotherapy article entitled Abrupt Discontinuation Versus Taper of Hydrocortisone in Patients with Septic Shock. So this multi-center retrospective study looked at hemodynamic instability requiring vasopressors during the taper or the 72 hours after abrupt continue, abrupt discontinuation of those corticosteroids. So 148 patients with stress dose steroids and at least one vasopressor and receiving antibiotics for 48 hours were included. So pretty sick patients, median SOFA score was 12. And what they found was that patients in the taper group had a significant increase in the duration Overall, as well as the duration following vasopressor discontinuation of corticosteroids and a multivariate logistic regression showed that abrupt discontinuation had a 71% reduction in the odds of restarting vasopressors. So to me, another interesting hypothesis generating finding is that fludrocortisone also significantly reduced the odds of vasopressor reinitiation. So, hmm. Fludrocortisone's having a moment here right now. And when I look at this study, I can't help but be taken back to residency entering these six-day steroid tapers based on the adrenal trial. Um, very glad the evidence, although retrospective in nature, is pointing towards those days being over. So in article vote number two, all the articles are focused on strategies to help new pharmacists and preceptors. So this is an article from the New Practitioners Forum in AJHP, and the winner of the popular vote, Layered Learning, Eight Precepting Strategies for the New Attending Pharmacist. And who is a senior author? No one else but faculty liaison Anthony Hawkins. So they list eight strategies um, focused on layered learning, right? Rotations that uh, take multiple learners in various stages of their training. Um, and I'm going to go over a couple of these strategies, but I'm not going to go over all of them because everyone should be reading this. And one of my favorites is entitled Unmasking the Imposter, right? Imposter syndrome. We all feel it. And the authors give a strategy that I try to use frequently with learners as well. Is just be honest, right? Share the mistakes you've made. If you've screwed something up, let them know, right? Knowing all of us are fallible, all of us make mistakes, puts things even more on an even playing field. And, it, you know, if you're sitting here thinking like, I don't make mistakes, right? That's that's mistake number one, right? That's just clearly not true. So um, being open and honest, I think is a really good um, advice, a piece of advice. The other strategy is laying the foundation. What I learned the hard way is how important it is to have a thorough, well-defined syllabus, as well as a plan for the orientation, right? So you need to make sure everyone understands expectations, where to go, how to do things. Uh, it will make life so much easier for everyone. Um, awesome article, especially for those early in their career pharmacists or those who are newly taking um, learners with them. Now, the final vote were all articles focused on PKPD in the critically ill, and the winners from our pharmacist colleagues in Iowa and a study in the Journal of Antimicrobial Chemotherapy entitled Population Pharmacokinetics and Target Attainment Analyses to Identify a Rational Empiric Dosing Strategy for Cefepime in the Critically Ill. So the authors are comparing a three-hour extended infusion to 30-minute infusions. So this is a prospective study that they took cefepime levels from ICU patients 
They analyzed them in a mixed effect model and ran Monte Carlo simulations to evaluate the two administration techniques. So two big findings. The first was that a three-hour infusion didn't improve target attainment as compared to a 30-minute infusion. And additionally, if you want to get the best time to MIC breakpoint coverage and limit neurotoxicity risks, three grams of cefepime per day as a continuous infusion is what their model recommends. You're probably asking, wait, we just went through the extended infusion study from Pittsburgh and Detroit showing better outcomes. True, true. Important differences here to note. This study was just cefepime, only ICU patients, and was a PKPD study. The open form ID study included all adult patients with multiple gram-negative antimicrobials, and that was not a PKPD study. That focused on clinical outcomes. So I think there are important differences to note. Um, I tend to be a clinical outcome person. Um, you know, neither study is 100% perfect, right? No placebo-controlled RCT or anything like that. Um, but just something to keep in mind. Um, but I think, you know, highlighting these two things, having a little discussion is a, great, is a great point. Now, ending with our random or non-clinical articles for April 2023. So, We have two of them here, rounding us out. So the first is an article from the Blue Journal looking at the relationship between nurse-to-nurse familiarity and mortality in the critically ill. So this retrospective French study had a primary outcome of a shift in which at least one death occurred. And they they defined or measured nurse-to-nurse familiarity as the number of times individual nurses work together. And these researchers found that a low nurse-to-nurse familiarity increased mortality and increased further, that, that mortality increased further in situations with suboptimal patient-to-nurse or patient-to-nursing-assistant ratio. So I think what this is, is a big argument for paying our nursing friends what they freaking deserve. And I want to end with a heartfelt letter entitled Sneakers. And it's about an 18-year-old in the ICU who loves sneakers it's a story about a medical team that came together to get him his dream pair. Um, I'm a sneakerhead. Uh, this story got me all in my feels. So I encourage everyone to read this chest article. Um, a really good kind of human piece to the side of medicine. What did I tell you guys? April 2023 was a fantastic month for research and publications. This was so, so good. Um, now, a couple things. Pharmacy to Dose 2023 award nominations right now. Um, And the May 2023 article voting will be happening. So start following on social media to get involved. Let your voice be heard at Pharmacy to Dose. Um, The reference list with the articles we discussed and more is featured in the podcast episode description, as well as the website, PharmacyToDose.com. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com apps. 
The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only does not offer individualized medical or professional health care services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal health care professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call 911, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACP or the critical care PRN. ACP and the critical care PRN disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.